Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen, if you dare. Go to the castle and beg for money, says a mother to her young son in the late Middle Ages. Perhaps the baron will show mercy on us and give us money or food. It's the only hope we have left, and he's more likely to help a child than an old woman like me. The child obeys, timidly approaching the castle. He speaks to a guard who then takes him inside. His mother hopes beyond hope that it's a good sign, that her son will return with something to eat at least. Even a scrap of bread would be better than starvation. She never sees her son again, and when the truth about the Baron's conduct comes to light, she dies of grief. I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the dark, haunted swamps of Louisiana, and it's my pleasure to welcome you into my terrifying world. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, A Punk Rock Vampire Story, which is volume one of the Gravediggers series. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of dark, evil, nasty creatures. It's horror, it's comedy, and one super entertaining series. It's a six-part series. The first three are already out. Volume four is coming out any day now, so be sure to read the first three so you'll be up to date. Big announcement. This podcast, 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore, starting tomorrow, will start being a podcast and a video series. Every podcast will be made into a video for YouTube. And every video will have a podcast behind it so with just the audio, so you can choose. Please like and subscribe as always. The FBI on their website gives one definition of serial murder as the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. From the FBI website. Have you thought much about serial killing? It's unique in that it's not murder for lust or money or defense or food or some other necessity but simply for the enjoyment of it, or maybe to satisfy some perverted desire, some sexual desire. The U.S. definitely leads the modern world in the number of serial killers. I've often thought about why. Maybe in another episode I'll approach that topic, but right now I'd like to talk about someone, a real historical character, who is considered by some to be the the world's first documented serial killer. The man's name was Gilles de Ray. He was French. Uh, he was from the late Middle Ages, and Gilles de Rey, perhaps in those times, was pronounced Gilles de Reis, or de Reis, we don't know. But uh, today, Gilles de Rey is more appropriate. In those days, there was no standard spelling or pronunciation for a lot of dialects. Gilles de Rey uh, was surprisingly a friend of Jeanne d'Arc, Joan of Arc, fought alongside her against the English. He reached very high ranks in the French military, and at one point, he was considered, or was, the Marshal of France. And around 1435, he quit the military. He was a very wealthy baron, but a real weirdo. 
he uh, he <laughs> wasted so much of his money on some weird things. First of all, he wrote some extravagant play for the theater, spent a huge chunk of his money producing it. He still owned tons of land, so he's still wealthy, but um, what I'm trying to say is that he was wealthy, powerful, greatly respected by the church and the state, but he was a weirdo. So this play he, he wrote, it was called Le Mystère du Siège d'Orléans, The Mystery of the Siege of Orleans. Listen to this from Wikipedia. The play consisted of more than 20,000 lines of verse requiring 140 speak, uh, speaking parts and 500 extras. Ray was almost bankrupt at the time of production and began selling property as early as 1432 to support his extravagant lifestyle. Uh, he sold most of it, and then it says, uh, it was first performed, the play that is, first performed in Orléans on May 8, 1435. 600 costumes were constructed, worn once, discarded, and constructed afresh for subsequent performances. Unlimited supplies of food and drink were made available to spectators at Ray's expense. So yeah, he blew a lot of money on that. He also built, with his own money, the Chapel of the Holy Innocents, which was supposedly a beautiful and opulent chapel. He wasn't even a priest, but he himself held the services there like he was one, and he wore this brilliant kind of showy outfit, priestly robes, that he designed himself. So you can see he was a bit of a nutter <laughs> and um, arrogant, right? Narcissist and just weird. In 1438... He, um, according to this priest, Eustache Blanchet, and a cleric, François Prelati, Ray sent, out, uh, Ray sent them out to find people who knew about alchemy and demon summoning. Now, alchemy was popular in the Middle Ages, right? Taking uh, known substances and changing them to others. And demon summoning, well, it was popular among a certain, you know, part of society. So this priest... Um, basically contacts this other guy, Prelati, in Florence, Italy, and got him to come, and Ray basically, the, the guy Prelati was a magician. Ray looks at his books and decides to do some demon summoning. He picks a demon named Baron. If I'm not mistaken, Baron is a demon of wealth and power, if I remember my demonology correctly. And so Ray draws up this contract with the demon Baron for riches. Yeah, okay, so for for he was a demon of wealth. Um, and he tries three times. No demon showed up. Well, uh, <laughs> they get really frustrated. And uh, basically, Prelati tells uh, Ray, hey, the demon Baron, actually, he's angry. You need to offer him a sacrificed child or the parts of a child. So Ray somehow provides these pieces uh, of a child, human child, tries again, and nothing happens. So he has just wasted a lot more money on demon conjuring without actually conjuring a demon. So he was indulgent, right, and self-promoting <laughs> into demonism. People who try to summon demons, those who fail and those who also have claimed to succeed, like Aleister Crowley, they always, or they usually, well, I suppose always ask the demon for something. That's the whole point of conjuring them. Usually involves money, love, sex, knowledge, power, you know, something like that. If you've read, uh, of course, uh, Faust, right, by Goethe, then you know all about that. Um, and, yeah, it all checks out of part of Gilles de Ray's personality, doesn't it? So on F May 15th and 1440, he kidnaps a priest. I'm not sure, I don't have the details here, but he gets in an argument with a priest at the church of Saint-Étienne de Mer-Morte. Uh, and he kidnaps him. And this comes to the attention of the Bishop of Nantes. 
And of course, not going to kidnap a priest without being found out. And the bishop launches an investigation into Rey and his other crimes are discovered. And on July 29th, the bishop released what he found. And he, uh, he basically has the state prosecute him. Um, basically, Ray, Ray, Gilles de Ray, and his bodyguards, Poitou and Henriet, we'll talk about them in a moment, were arrested, um, investigation, uh, prosecuted him for murder, sodomy, and heresy. And on October 21st, 1440, he openly confessed. He confessed without torture. That's something to keep in mind. Confession under torture is one thing, right? Torture is not effective. You'll say anything if you're tortured, but he confessed without being tortured. So what did he, con- uh, what did he confess to? Well, <laughs> get ready because it's some sick stuff. So beginning in 1432, Gilles de Ré murdered at least one to two hundred, hundred children, maybe as many as 600, depending on the source. He preferred prepubescent boys, but also murdered some prepubescent girls and pubescent boys and girls, but he preferred them on the younger end and boys. One of his favorite things to do was to take a very poor child. So these are the children that would show up to the castle begging, right? He would take them in and give them these beautiful, rich clothing, like, like they've, nothing they've seen before, right? Then he'd have them join him and the others in this big banquet. They would eat, you know, stuff themselves with, with delicacies, the finest food. They would drink spiced wine, which was popular then, and get really drunk. And Gilles de Rey had three regular accomplices. First, his cousin, Gilles de Sillet, uh, his bodyguard, Etienne Corriot, who was nicknamed Poitou, probably because he was from there. Uh, and this is happening in Brittany, by the way, all of this. And another bodyguard named Henriet. So Gilles de Rey and then one or more of these accomplices would take the child up to this kind of secret torture chamber that only they were allowed to enter. He would tell the child that he was going to kill them. And the child's reaction, right, the horrified reaction, apparently turned him on sexually. He's a real sicko. He then stripped the child naked, hang him up on with ropes, tie him up to these hooks. And then he'd tell the child, no, I was, I was just joking. I'm not really going to hurt you. Now it gets even sicker. His favorite thing to do, he would then himself masturbate close to the child. He would ejaculate on the child's nude stomach and legs. And if the victim was a boy, sometimes, not every time apparently, but sometimes Gilles, while he was masturbating, would play with the boy's testicles and his butt while, while he himself masturbated. So yeah, he's a sicko. But his sexual pleasure wasn't necessarily from pure pedophilia because his accomplices said he never actually raped the children. I mean, not that that's a good thing. It's horrible enough. But he never actually raped them or engaged in sexual activity except a little fondling. Uh, so maybe he wasn't purely a pedophile, but he was sure something along that line. So after he himself, Gilles, his orgasm, right, with the child, uh, he or sometimes his cousin, Gilles de Sillet, whom I mentioned earlier, would kill the poor child. And his preferred methods, he would either cut the child's head off, and I mean while the child's alive, cut the child into pieces, again, while, while he or she was alive, slash their throat and let them bleed out, or just break their neck. And for this uh, cutting, he used a uh, brachmar. I had to look this up. And if you want to look it up, it's spelled B-R-A-Q-U-E-M-A-R-D, pronounced brachmar in French. It's uh, a short double-edged sword. I had to look it up myself. And if you look it up on Google Images, it really looks terrifying, especially imagining what this sicko did with it, right? 
He, uh, he would sit on the child's stomach if he could and watch the child die and laugh at their reaction. Then after the child was dead, he would hold them up and kiss them, then cut them open and look at their organs. He seemed to get off on looking at their internal organs. Ugh. Now, after he was finished with this, this horrible work, I'm not sure what to call it, his dark work, his bodyguards had to burn the child's clothing and body in the fireplace of the torture chamber. They would then take the ashes and just toss them out into the moat of the castle or the castle's cesspit, like they were less than trash. So, yeah, he's arrested and he confesses. His two bodyguards are arrested too. I kind of feel sorry for his bodyguards, not because they were innocent, but they were in kind of a tough place. I mean, if they had said no to the horrible things he told them to do, he likely would have tortured and killed them too, you know? So, boy, between a rock and a hard place. Gilles de Rey was found guilty of murder, sodomy, heresy. His bodyguards were convicted of assisting. And he wasn't, again, he was not tortured for his confession. He openly confessed. And the uh, trial note said that he was very contrite, that he showed lots of guilt and remorse, whether that was real or just his sociopathic personality pretending, we don't know. But he readily admitted his crimes, agreed that he deserved to die for them. In fact, he said, when you kill us, let me be the first to die of the three. So on October 26th, 1440, indeed, he and his two bodyguards were executed, killed by hanging and burning. Now, this method basically is like a normal hanging, but you set a fire under the body as they're being hanged. Usually, the hanging itself is what kills the person, and then the fire burns up their bodies, kind of like adding insult to injury. I guess some unfortunate individuals who didn't die immediately from the hanging would have to, you know, be burned alive, but not, it was not the case with Gilles uh, or his bodyguards. And right before he died, he told his bodyguards, don't worry, ignore the pain, ignore the, you know, the fear, just repent, focus on salvation. Before he was executed, he himself confessed to a priest, and uh, because of that, you know, he was, he was, I suppose, forgiven. I mean, he was still going to be killed for his actions, but apparently, you know, according to Catholic doctrine, would have received forgiveness. He was allowed to be buried at Notre-Dame-des-Carmes in the city of Nantes. Uh, so he received a Christian burial after all of that. There have been theories that Gilles was set up and was actually innocent, since the accusing church would have gotten all of his land right after his death. But most scholars that have really looked into it believe that he really was just a sick serial killer who got caught. Then either he feigned remorse or maybe showed true remorse. He accepted his fate and confessed. Wow. What do you think about Gilles de Rey? Among, uh, among all the serial killers that I've heard of, I have to say he ranks among the worst, maybe even the worst. I mean, look, he targeted children, he tortured them psychologically, sexually, killed them painfully. Uh, he, he delighted, you know, took pleasure in cutting them up, looking at their organs. And then what's always so sad to me is how these killers dispose of bodies. These, were, these victims were human beings, you know, with families, people who loved them. But he burned them up and threw them in cesspools or in the moat like they were trash, or even worse than trash. To me, that's so sad. He was awful, disturbing, horrifying. There might be many lessons to draw from the case of Gilles de Rey, possibly the world's first serial killer or maybe the first documented one. But one of them that strikes me is that, you know, no matter how respected or wealthy or important or even religious a person might seem to be on the outside, you never truly know what evil lies on the inside, do you? We really never know what lies in the heart of the people around us. And 
You know, there could be good, great good or there could be great evil. Sometimes you just don't know. Now, whether this is truly the first serial killer in history or not, I'm not sure. You have to wonder how long serial murder has been going on. It's considered by criminologists to be a relatively new phenomenon, especially in the U.S. and in Europe. But, you know, here's a case from the late Middle Ages, and if it existed then, you have to kind of wonder if it didn't exist uh, before that. Gilles de Rey, horrible human being. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time, and until then, sleep well, if you can. Thank you.